Here is Purple for the third or fourth most mediocre Husky football podcast on the internet. I'm Andrew Berg. Joining me today is Coach B. Coach, it was an adrenaline-filled win over USC. How are you feeling this week? Still undefeated, still in the top five in the country, still with a clear path to the Pac-12 championship game and the college football playoff. It's an exciting time to be a Husky fan. Oh, it's it's fantastic place. I mean, it's it's been a while since we've been in this position. Um you know, I we weren't even undefeated this late in the season back in 16 when we got to the college football playoffs, right? So right, yeah. I saw somewhere on Twitter today that it's been over 20 years since we've had a 9-0 start. So um, super exciting. Um, it's a great feeling to be in control of your own destiny for all of the loftiest goals that we have uh, that were really seemed like a far-fetched dream at the beginning of the season. Um, there's been a lot of uh, ups and downs along the way, but, you know, keeping that record pristine, you know, through some clunkers and through some adrenaline-filled emotional roller coasters like this past weekend, um, <clears throat> it's just another testament to, you know, winners find a way to win, and uh, we got the job done this past weekend. It is funny you mentioned that about the 2016 team because I, I have a very – uh, clear memory. I was uh, on a trip to Austin, Texas the weekend UW lost to USC appropriately enough in the regular season at uh, Sam Darnold game. And it was also uh, the first weekend in November. I think the bye fell later in the year that year. So the Huskies weren't, uh, I think they were 7 0 at the time rather than 8 0 going in. Uh, but that was I remember the first weekend in November because it was 2016 election weekend, and so that, that weekend is very memorable. Uh, and also because I was uh, going to a, a Texas versus West Virginia game uh, in Austin that weekend, and then later in the day watched USC beat UW uh, in a very disappointing game. And then this one was nothing like that. It was just this wonderful offensive explosion, and that was led obviously by Dylan Johnson unbelievable game for him we talked earlier in the year about whether Johnson has enough uh, depth to his arsenal and enough uh, kind of endurance within an individual game to be the bell cow running back if that's ever needed for a specific game you said yes but we haven't proven it yet now he's proven it now he's absolutely done he had 256 yards four touchdowns 250 yard runs 199 yards before contact. So it's not all just on him, but also on the offensive line. What, you know, this was 256 yards is like what Johnson has been averaging in three or four games for most of the year. What was different about this game that allowed him to just explode the way he did? I think it was, it was a couple of different factors here, but I mean, you know, you, you, you know, before I sound like I'm trying to mitigate or minimize any sort of, uh, you know, huge, you know, career performance from him. But I think it does start with the 
offensive staff, you know, Ryan Grubb probably saw ahead of time leading into the game in their game planning and kind of, uh, you know, review of film and whatnot that USC's defense, and I think we all understood their defense is not good as exhibited by the fact that they, you know, I guess you can't tarmac a, a defensive coordinator when <laughs> it's a home game, but effectively that um, they, they let go of their D, uh, DC Alex Grinch uh, the day after the game. And so, you know, they're, they're not a very disciplined defense. They have some talent across the board, but it's, they don't play sound fundamental football. They're very reactionary. They're very, um, they are very aggressive, but that can be used against them. And, and I think it was seeing that weakness coach Grubb really focused on, on the run game. And, you know, I, th- this is the biggest running individual running back performance, the most dominant, you know, combined team rushing performance that we've seen um, under this staff uh, through, what is it, 22 games, something like that now uh, on Mont Lake. And it was very much intentional. He had something like 26 carries. I don't think we've had any running back, you know, really get into the upper 20s, even mid-20s in carries. Um, And they saw something, they knew that the running game was going to be a weakness. And then Grubb also expanded upon the the rushing attack, right? We've seen a couple of the base kind of run concepts get rolled out over the course of the season. And uh, I'll go into it significantly more depth in a behemoth of a film study article that's going to go up tomorrow, or I guess the same day that this podcast goes up. But we saw a lot of different... Uh, schematic tweaks new concepts things like that that really contributed to johnson's success now how much of that was something that the coaches identified as kind of low-hanging fruit in the usc defense versus things that were probably just ready to be implemented over the course of the year anyway was this just taking advantage of a poor defense or is there real progress in both the offensive line play well i guess three things the offensive line execution the offensive line scheme and then johnson's own ability and and uh, execution in his own right i think that the offensive line execution has uh, improved over the course of the season and we, we even saw something similar where some of the concepts that we run and the diversity that's in the playbook um it, it can take time to, to build some of that cohesion across a unit and we've had a number of injuries and ro- rotating pass in the starting lineup over the course of the season. Um, but now that we've, we've gotten a little bit healthier, you know, we got Julius Bulow back in the lineup. Um, Brailsford's holding it down in the middle. Uh, Nate Kaleppo has been fairly steady over the course of the season. And we have our outstanding offensive tackles there. Um, but even if you look at last year, over the course of the season, the run game improved down the stretch. And we're starting to see that again this year. Um but as far as what you were saying on how much it was intentional and, and opponent specific, I think that the play calling was very opponent specific to USC, but it all looks like run plays that were already built into the system. And kind of, again, I'll go into greater detail in tomorrow's film study, but um, a lot of the concepts, they're just building off of what's already in there. You know, we'll, 
we we like to run a lot of counter with our offensive line and and Dylan Johnson this year. And then there's a natural kind of no pun intended counter to counter off of outside zone and then a little bit of window dressing with motion or or that toss play that broke a couple of big runs later in the game. And it all kind of feeds off of the same very similar looks, but some tweaks to how we block things up and and where the point of attack is. And it just starts to play mind games with the linebackers. They don't know where to flow to. They don't know which gaps to plug. And and I think it's Grub, you know, really digging into the the depth of his run game um, call sheet to to take advantage of that weakness. Yeah, and it it checks a box. At least one line of criticism about the Huskies, which was that. They have this phenomenal passing offense, but not much else. They don't really run the ball. They don't really defend it all that well, either against the run or against the pass. And we've seen at least some evidence of a lot of those different pieces. Yeah, There have been times when the pass defense has actually been quite good. And then in this game, the run offense was outstanding. And if that becomes maybe not the norm, but at least something that we can get to when we need it, uh, it, it really changes I think the perception of the team and as we get closer to CFP selection time, perception will start to matter a lot. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the path in that direction. Uh, the run offense, uh, the Huskies were able to pass the ball fairly well against USC's defense. It was well, obviously wasn't as dominant as the rush attack, but Penix did uh, complete 22 of 30 passes, 256 yards. Uh, he threw that incredible touchdown uh, on third and long to Devin Culp in the corner of the end zone. And even the one interception he threw required a really nice defensive play uh, by the linebacker jumping up in the the underneath zone to tip the ball. Um, it, it just barely got his finger on it that caused the interception. Uh, so it wasn't, wasn't just an obviously horrible decision. But uh, what did you think of the outside of what Johnson and the offensive line did um, the pass offense again, without Jalen McMillan, uh, but now getting, you know, integrating a few different weapons uh, in the receiver room in addition to Polk and Aldunze. Um, how did, what did you think? Yeah, I thought it was a great opportunity for guys um, that are more secondary targets um, in, in our receiving core. You know, everybody has known Devin Culp uh, is, is talented. You know, he's had his ups and downs over the course of his lengthy tenure at UW, but uh it was, it was great to see him make some of those outstanding plays, uh, especially on that touchdown right there. Um, you know, I have a high level of confidence in in the depth of our receiver room. I mean, you know, Polk, who entered the season as the third wide receiver, you know, behind Rome and, and Jalen McMillan, um, has stepped up phenomenally as, as the dynamic duo with Rome. Um, Giles Jackson came down with a couple of very key uh, conversion receptions uh, at the end of the fourth quarter there just to keep chewing the clock and, and eventually score that final touchdown for uh, for UW. Um, so it, it was great to see all that. It was also great to see how involved we got, um, that they got in, in the run game. There were some phenomenal uh, perimeter blocking from the wide receivers. You know, it's it's not just that these guys can – can haul in those highlight, you know, receptions downfield, but they're also doing, doing the work to set up their teammates, set up Dylan Johnson downfield, um, 
Polk and uh, and Jackson had had two of the most important blocks at the point of attack on that long 50-yard uh, run off of a toss play deep in our own end yeah. of the field. Um, they, they were phenomenal in, in that regard. But uh, it, it, it was, you know, big picture for the passing attack. It was it was good to see a little bit of a change in approach to the play calling. It was a lot more opportunistic in the passing game rather than, uh, you know, m- most of the games this season have been, you know, opportunistic, you know, what one available will run the ball, but we're going to lean on the passing game. It, it flipped around the other way and we're still able to maintain that level of efficiency and explosiveness to, to win that shootout. Right. Yeah. And it was interesting to see, it seemed like early in the game, the, through the air the underneath routes were more available getting things moving side to side and as the game went on um there was a little bit more room downfield and Penix started to throw it a little deeper uh and and complete more of the passes kind of in that second level of uh of the defensive zone so it was it was opportunistic both in terms of the run versus pass selection but also when um Penix and Grubb decided to take bigger shots downfield and it ultimately paid off because those were the times later in the game when it became necessary uh, to to make the bigger plays because it was when the, the defense started to uh, bow its neck a little bit. So I think going into the game, we knew, or at least assumed, that the script of this game would require a couple, three, four big defensive stops to get USC off the field because we knew USC's defense was not very strong, but their offense was incredible. And it definitely followed that of that trajectory where Caleb Williams kept USC not just in the game, but just kept the offense clicking along, scoring almost every time they had the ball. And it became the UW defense's job to get him off the field just enough uh, to to build a little bit of a margin. And they did that. Um, a few key plays, there was the ZTF strip sack near the end of the first half that it kind of gave the Huskies an extra possession going into the, the middle eight minutes of the game. There was the uh, Voitunu Ufi sack late in the game uh, that forced uh, a USC punt. And then they also got a, a uh, turnover on downs late to the degree that USC did not score in the fourth quarter. Uh, it was tied going into the fourth quarter. The Huskies scored 10 points down the stretch and won by 10 points. So it was exactly what they was needed do you think that sort of defensive performance is sustainable down the stretch? In the, and by that, I don't mean, can we give up 42 points every game? I mean, can the defense play like it did in this game and the Huskies continue to win every week where it's just very opportunistic, very um, like give the offense an extra possession or two, or are we going to need to see more of the like actually getting stops throughout the game type of defense down the stretch? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, so it's a bit of a, a, a tough question to answer uh, in, a, in a simple, concise way. Um, I think that we have figured out a way to play complementary football to what the strengths of this team are, right? Like some of the writers had a conversation about this and kind of a debate going on, um, but – our the strength of our our defense is well it's, it's it's a relatively average defense big picture right we cannot be playing this way and expect you know uh smooth sailing to a national championship you know despite the strength of our our offense right but they 
they won't be playing a Heisman caliber quarterback every week, right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> Tim Williams won the Heisman last year for a reason. He's an, a phenomenal um, talent at quarterback. He's a dual threat. It's tough to bring him down. And that really neutralized the strength of our defense, which is, you know, the, the pass rush, you know, comparatively to the other uh, units on that team, on, on that uh, defense. So it, that that really slowed that part down. There were definitely, you know, I, I kind of mentioned it to, to some of the other writers where I think that there was probably 21 points that Caleb Williams was responsible for off of broken plays where if he wasn't as good as he was and didn't have the dual threat ability, that would have been an either incompletion or a sack or something along those lines against most other, most other teams, right? Where the margin of victory would have been substantially bigger and it would have had a much different uh, narrative after the game. But, uh, you know, I, I think we have a recipe for, for success um, that can carry us through a, a Pac-12 title game appearance, you know. We have the offense to get out to a lead, force the the opposing offense to play a little bit off script, you know, maybe if they're more possession-oriented, like some teams are, you know, force them to really press for a more aggressive big play that plays into our pass rush and and some of that. Um, but but we'll see <clears throat> if, if it's sustainable um, deep into hopefully January. Yeah, right. I mean, you said that we don't know if they'll play another Heisman quarterback, uh, Heisman caliber quarterback. There's at least one on the horizon. It's not locked in yet, but um, we've already played Bo Nix once, and he's only gotten better. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about the looming potential rematch with Oregon, but let's take a break and we'll talk about Utah. We'll talk about what's left on the schedule, and we'll talk about the potential Pac-12 title game as well. So stick around. We'll be right back. Thanks for staying with us. As promised, we're going to first talk a little bit about the upcoming game against Utah. Uh, the Utes have had an interesting year. They're 7-2. and two. Their two losses both came in conference to Oregon and Oregon State in games where the offense just didn't really show up. They scored seven in Corvallis. They scored six at home against the Ducks. And that's been a problem throughout the year. They've had so many injuries on offense. There have been times when it just didn't look like they had a functional unit. Uh, and that... Uh, leading the way with that is cam rising who's been out for the year they they seem to think at the start of the year they were going to get him back uh from the injury he suffered at the end of last year uh and he hasn't played all year they've since announced that he's not coming back that has turned them into a extremely heavy run oriented offense centered around converted quarterback jaquindon jackson leading the running back room but then more recently converted safety sioni vaki who's also become an extremely dangerous runner and, and destroyed Cal uh, in their, uh, I think it was their week six game with his running attack. Uh, what do you think about this Utah offense, particularly their ability and their their need to run the ball so often? Is that going to be a problem for Washington's internal defensive line, linebacking core that did not look particularly strong against USC, missed some, has missed tackles throughout the year and isn't really getting a lot of push into the opponent backfield to shut down drives that really focus on the running game. Is that going to be kind of the flashback to the 2021 season where the Huskies just couldn't, they gave up, didn't give up a lot of big plays, but also could not get off the field defensively. What do you think is likely to play out in this uh, Utah matchup? 
Yeah, my take on that is, you know, funny I mentioned complementary football a little bit there. Utah is the exact opposite of us, right? They have a very sound defense that is regularly in the top of the conference for, you know, any number of statistics, total defense, uh, scoring defense, things of that nature. They have a great pass rusher whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, Ennis, I believe is his last name. Hunter yeah. or, or something like that. Um, but they're they're gonna try and lean on their defense to to get maybe four, five, six stops and just try to pound the ball and kill the clock throughout the game. Very, very Stanford-esque uh from the Harbaugh and Shaw era, right? Um on on the flip side, right? If if our offense is as unstoppable as it looked against USC and some of our earlier season opponents. Um, and we, we get out to say a two, two possession lead, maybe a three possession lead. And that forces them off of their game plan. Then that does a, that goes a ways in protecting our own defense, right? If we have to take the ball and put it into Barnes's hands and force him to chuck it deep, which he is capable of doing. He is a relatively mobile quarterback who has a pretty strong arm, a couple of um, uh, dangerous uh, weapons who can get behind a defense that's not prepared for it or, or playing too heavy against the run. Um, if, if we force them into that and more of a drop back passing situation, um, I'm, I'm not quite as worried about our inability to, to, to stop their rushing attack. Although, you know, we we have had success at times stopping a, a rushing attack when prepared, and um, build that into part of our game plan. There, um, I don't know what's what say you. Yeah, it feels like it's going to just look like a very very different game from USC. I was talking earlier about we knew going into the USC game this is going to be one where we needed to get two or three stops and let the offense play. I don't think that's going to be the case here, but it's we're going to need to get more than two or three stops. It's not going to be, you know, oh, we got a strip sack that's going to swing the whole game. We're going to need to force some punts along the way. Uh, But I think that's going to be more probable. It's going to be easier to do than it was against Caleb Williams because there were so many times we were so close to shutting him down um, and he just magically escaped. And Utah doesn't have a player who can quite do that. Uh, I have been a little bit surprised to see some of the advanced stat models that favor UW by 10, 12, 15 points in this game because I, it looks like a closer game than that to me uh, because I do think Utah's defense, particularly the past defense, and you mentioned uh, Jonah Ellis um, grew up in Moscow, Idaho in the shadow of the Kibbe Dome, uh, but not just the pass rush, but also the secondary. And it's just kind of a every year Morgan Scally, they have a, a pass defense that regardless of the personnel and regardless who's left is very, very difficult to get big plays against. Um so we're going to need more of a balanced offensive approach. And there are going to be more punts. It's not going to be a game where we score every time we touch the football or you know try punting the ball one time in the entire game. Uh, so we need to execute at a high level offensively and take the points that are there, uh, but also find a way to force Utah to just end some drives, either you know keep the game short enough that we can get one negative play to get them off schedule or you know Utah 
piles up a penalty or two here or there and gets them behind the chains. And we do that. I think I, I'll feel a lot better about, uh, you know, our ability to, um, to stretch it out enough. So it's a little bit more comfortable at the end of the game, but I don't think it's going to be easy to get there just because I, I do have a lot of respect for Utah's defense, even if it hasn't been quite as dominant as it has the last couple of years. What do you think just from what you've seen in Utah's defense, is there something to attack here? Is there, is there uh, going to be, is this going to look kind of like the Arizona state game where there's so much pressure on Penix that we aren't able to really get the passing game going, or is there a little bit more of a, a, a an apparent game plan that can work in the passing offense. Yeah, that's that's the tough part is that they're so well-rounded and overall such a, a sound defensive uh, unit that I don't see a particularly glaring weakness just kind of offhand um, without really taking a deep dive into, into their defense. Um, that's on my to-do list for li- later this week for the defensive preview. But um, I I do respect their their defensive staff and their game planning, and they usually have a good answer for for most offense. Where, um, they're 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 a group that will go and look back on previous opponents and see what works. Right, I have no idea why USC didn't try to emulate ASU or Stanford bringing pressure bringing pressure up the middle in particular and, and trusting their talented DBs. Um, instead, USC just rushed three drop date and let us just, you know, work them underneath. And and we still were able to get some big plays out, out of that deep. Um, I suspect that Utah will bring the pressure. So, so it'll, it'll, it'll be a tough matchup. You know, I think our, our healthier offensive line and, and, team overall will will help in that regard. I don't think it'll be quite as low scoring as the ASU game, but uh it's it's going to be a tough one. It's strength on strength and and I'm curious to see how how this all ends up. Yeah, I, I was going to add when you the comparison to the ASU game, we do have a healthier offensive line now uh with Julius Bulo playing again and and having a little more of a veteran presence allowing Parker Brailsford to move back into the middle that having that hopefully helps mitigate some of the um, inexperience that caused all the problems against the interior pressure against Arizona state. Uh, Let's give me a, a, before we talk about uh, the rest of the schedule, a quick prediction on uh, a final score for this game. I could see this turning into a, Let's call it a 34, a 34-24 UW okay. win. I, I think I had it very, uh, very similar spread, slightly lower scoring. I was going to go 30-21 to 21, um, UW win. I do think UW deserves to be favored in this game, but I don't think it is anywhere near a sure thing. So... Uh, there's definitely a version of this where Utah's defense gives UW even more trouble than we're forecasting, and um, the game comes down to the to the very end. Uh, but if UW does get through this, the rest of the schedule looks a little less daunting than it did um, a few weeks ago. Oregon State has wobbled a little bit. Um, they're, they've now lost a second conference game uh, last week against Arizona before this week playing not all that great against Colorado on the road. Um, they still have 
the Huskies and the Ducks left. They're, they've been a very good team for most of the year, uh, but not clear if they will quite be able to play to the level of the top two teams in the conference. Uh, Washington State, meanwhile, has has kind of collapsed. They're now actually last in the conference or tied with several other teams at one and five after five straight losses, including a 10 to seven home loss against Stanford. Most recently, their last two home games, they've scored a total of 13 points. If UW does get through through those two games, regardless of what happens against Utah, that would mean uh, it's UW and almost certainly Oregon in the Pac-12 title game. That game has such incredibly high stakes. It's it's not only a rivalry game. It would you know on the neutral site between two probable you know top ten, maybe even top five teams at that point, with a chance. It's kind of a national quarterfinal, a chance to go to the college football playoff, the conference title on the line. What do you, you don't even have to start thinking about predictions in that game, but what do you think about? How does it make you feel just looking forward to a potential game like that possibly happening in about four weeks? Yeah, this has been a topic of conversation with some of my other buddies that are season ticket holders you got right, where, you know, Oregon is, well, Oregon is clearly the most complete team left, you know, kind of in that, obvious uh you know new year six bowl contention out of our conference you know outside of u-dub and and it's that well-roundedness that really really scares me you know it, it was a it was a tight game in seattle right so playing on a neutral field you know vegas usually says it's about a three-point swing between a home field advantage and a and a neutral site right so we had a three-point margin of victory so it's gonna be razor thin margins there and and quite frankly, they, they they do they they do kind of scare me a little bit. But at the same time, if we have the the playoff hopes and aspirations um, in our sights, right, we're going to need to play teams like that and teams better than that, right? Um, mm-hmm. Better than Oregon. So, um, you know, I'd still go into that game with a level of confidence. I'm not afraid of playing them again. But that is certainly the toughest opponent uh, in in any of those scenarios for us to face. Yeah, it 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 would be. I think a lot of the national media, from what I've seen, has is already not only penciled in that game, but presumed that Oregon is more likely to win. That was based on UW having a couple of less than stellar performances after the Oregon game against Stanford and Arizona State, while Oregon was just very comfortably handling Washington state and Utah. So it looked like the trajectories were diverging with Oregon on an upward swing. This win over USC kind of gives the Huskies back some momentum. We'll see what Oregon does over their last three. They have the Trojans as well this week, followed by a trip to Tempe and then Oregon state in their final home game. All of them on paper look like probable uh, uh, Oregon wins, but you never know. Uh, they they certainly haven't had the type of year this year where they look susceptible to stubbing their toe against a team that's not as talented as them or as balanced as them. But they did have a one-possession game against Texas Tech. You never know. You go on the road against some of these teams. Arizona State's playing better. Um, USC can stay with anyone just with Caleb Williams. Uh, so who knows what happens there even with their um, firing their Alex Grinch, the defensive coordinator. So it's it a lot could happen over the next three weeks, either to the Huskies or Ducks, but I would love to get that matchup. It's, it scares me. It's terrifying, but it would also just be so 
important and fun and and just an all-time matchup that I, I can't not want that to happen in the final season of the Pac-12 existing as we know it. Uh, let's uh, finish it up for now. We'll come back to this next week. We'll, we know a little bit more. We'll have seen the results of this Utah game. Uh, but is there anything in the in the meat of this college football schedule that you've been able to take your mind off of football, even for a little bit, that you'd recommend uh, as our, this week's recommendation uh, outside of the college football world? And this week, I actually came prepared. Um, you know, last time I was on, I, I gave a recommendation for some of the the audiobook library from Seattle uh, Public mm. Libraries. Um, so I've been making my way through a number of books, and I finally got around to finishing um, Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I've been a I I love watching uh, his shows, <clears throat> whether it's No Reservations or or parts unknown. Um, and I knew about the book. I just never got around to either reading or listening to it. And so I finally listened to that one last week and it was, it was, he's a very talented writer, um, very engaging, uh, intelligent sense of humor while crass language. It's, it it was a very engaging book to listen to. Yeah. Very, very cool. I, yeah, very. He's such an interesting person too. The like such a strange and unique life. Um, but I, I was also going to recommend a book I just finished by. Uh, it's a relatively new book by uh, an author who's been around for a long time named Rachel Cusk. Uh, the book is called Second Place. It's about um, a semi-retired writer who retires uh, into the swampland in the south, presumably somewhere in Florida, and invites a uh, very famous. Uh, painter to live in their uh, like guest home in the swamp and the book is one long letter that she's writing to a friend about the experience of having this very egotistical kind of uh, malignant writer living on their property with them it is a very strange book but very very well written um, and I, I I think she, I've read a few things she's written she's just a beautiful writer can really like evoke very clear feelings uh with her with her words so you're interested in reading something a little more um kind of literary those are kind of two different types of book recommendations but i think both um very interesting types of book recommendations so hopefully something that uh people can find interesting between the two of them so that does it for us this week uh we've got a huge game against utah this weekend i can't wait for it I, I, I'm just like bubbling with excitement over these next three games. I wish I could just watch them all back to back on Saturday. I just wake up and just watch every remaining Husky game for the year uh, and inject it into my veins. We're going to have to wait. Hopefully uh, we will be back next week with Husky Hall of Famer Cody Pickett, the recent inductee. You never know. We're always getting closer. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening and go dogs. Go dogs.